right. Hello, everyone. It's me, Jeff. I'm here today with a very special guest. We've got Sal the Agorist of Twitter fame. Hey, Sal, how are you doing? What's up? Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I've been following you for a long time. You're one of my favorite accounts. You always tweet out fantastic memes about liberty, about how the government fails at such and such. And I'm wondering, do you make a lot of those yourself? Do you get them from other folks? Both, both. So I make probably maybe one out of every five, one out of every four. And the rest I scavenge from the depths of the internet, including yours, by the way. I, I know I know you guys make some real banger memes. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's great to, you know, share these ideas and get traction around. So I don't ever, you know, give anybody a hard time about using my stuff or anything like that. And I use everybody else's stuff, you know, freely, so... Nice. Yeah, I know in, intellectual property is not something we're really big on in the liberty movement. Right. But, so always appreciate I always appreciate that you tag us when you share our stuff, though. That's always nice. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Sal the agorist. So I feel like agorism is a liberty philosophy that's not as well known, kind of like voluntarism. But mostly what people hear is the libertarianism because of the Libertarian Party. So now, myself, I know generally about agorism. I've heard of Sam Conklin or Conklin. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even yeah. But so, what can you give us a rundown of agorism? What's it all about? How is it different from libertarianism, voluntarism, anarcho-capitalism, yeah. etc.? Sure, of course. Yeah. So agorism is essentially a strategy to achieve a voluntarist society, what we call the agora. And we believe that by focusing on peaceful voluntary transactions that are prohibited by the state and by sort of promoting um, that sort of arena of economic activity, the black and gray markets, that we can sort of transfer resources from the political class to the agora, to the agorists, the free thinkers, people um, like ourselves. And that's sort of the whole idea. And the idea is that, you know, as the counter economy grows larger and larger, eventually it overshadows the state until one day when the counter economy is large enough, there is a sort of a demand for um, de private defense agencies. And initially these private defense agencies will compete with the state police services. But over in time, um, we think that they'll actually protect private property from them. And when that happens, we'll sort of have the final snuffing out of the state. And at that point, we'll have only, uh, you know, we'll, we'll live in a world where politics is absent and it's only governed by voluntary, mutually beneficial transactions. Like that, the market, the agora. Exactly, yeah. So I, I heard you say uh, gray and black markets. So black markets, people, they get scared. They think, oh, dealing in drugs, illegal guns that kind of stuff. Do you get pushed back from the average folks when you start to talk about this kind of stuff? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Uh, and it's to be expected. You know, it's, it's, it's a, this is probably the most radical version of libertarianism that there is. So I, I expect it and I welcome it because, you know, we need to, you know, explore these ideas more and expand them and get, you know, more people exposed to them and stuff like that. Um, I, I would caution that, um, people are afraid of the black market because that's what the state has convinced us to be. When in fact, it's really the state controlled markets that are much, much, much more dangerous. You know, for example, if you look at, you know, the, the market for Boeing and, and Raytheon and Honeywell and, 
stuff like that and the way they interact with governments, that's much more dangerous than anything any black market um, operator has ever engaged in. And that includes drug dealers and stuff like that. Although I'm not sanctioning that sort of behavior. I don't think that's a good idea. But my point is that the state does worse things every day. So it's not really the black market that we should be afraid of. It's really the, the, the white and red markets where the state operates that we should be fearing. I agree. It reminds me of something I think uh, Tom Wood said uh, regarding not agorism, black markets, but anarchy. The people are so much more afraid of the word anarchy than the word state. Yes. And yes. that's an indication of how successful the state's propaganda has been, that they're afraid of the fictitious or imaginary horrors of anarchy, but they're not at all concerned or probably don't even know about the horrors the state perpetuates. Right, exactly. And I would also point out that the black market and the gray market actually come to the rescue of the individual when the state does oppress people. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, uh, Dallas Buyers Club, or if any of your listeners have seen it, but it's a great movie with Matthew McConaughey. And it's about some guy in the like, 80s who gets AIDS or something like that. I haven't seen it in a while, but whatever the medicine that he needs is inaccessible according to, you know, the FDA's rules and regulations, but the black market steps in and provides him with help. Again, we saw it also with COVID, right? With all these Mm -hmm. vaccine mandates, people didn't turn to, um, you know, the libertarian party and, and Nick Sarwak and say, Hey, please help me keep my job. They turned to the black market and they said, Hey, where can I get some of these, you know, vaccine uh, passports on the low? Mm-hmm. And again, it was the, it was, you know, of course, you know, history has countless examples of the black market bailing out um, individuals oppressed by the state. Um, I just uh, published a book, Anti-Politics, that um, has four sections. And the, the final section is all about um, historical examples of this. And there's, there's really sort of my problem when, in writing that section was that there were so many examples that I really can only pick, you know, so many. Okay, that's, that's not a bad problem to have. True. Yeah. I know that something similar is going on now with the new vaccine mandates that uh, the Biden administration is pushing through OSHA to try to have every employer virtually uh, mandate the injections. And more and more... Uh, I know I'm on a Reddit group and I've seen websites that are catering to people who don't want to get the injections for whatever reason and are still looking for employment, whether under the table or over the table. So the market is finding a way where the government is trying to stomp things down. Yeah. And, you know, we as agorists, one of the the, really the main strategy that we push is entrepreneurship. That's because, you know, in order to allocate resources, you know, we know through studying Austrian economics that only the entrepreneur can allocate resources in a market economy. So if you want to allocate resources away from the state, you have to be an entrepreneur to do so. That's why if you think about it, all agorism, all counter-economic activity is entrepreneurial. But not all, not all entrepreneurship is necessarily agorist. Um, but my, my point here is that entrepreneurship sort of solves this issue. Right. There is no no entrepreneur is going to have to deal with their boss, making them get vaccine mandates or something like that, because they are their boss. And that's sort of the whole um, to me, it's just sort of more proof that agorism is the right strategy. Hmm. I like it. I like it very much. So implementing agorism, the mentioned counter economics. So doing things that are just not approved by the state, like any kind of economic transaction or 
specific avenues? Like we're talking garage sales or like so people. So any basically any sort of um, voluntary transaction that's prohibited by the state is considered part of the counter economy. Okay, so it has to be something the state does not want you to do. Exactly, something that the state either prohibits or regulates. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they if they prohibit it, then it falls into the black market. If they regulate it, then it falls into the gray market, right? So something like cigarettes would be an example. They just you know tax the crap out of cigarettes, so they've created this sort of gray market where people can sort of smuggle cigarettes from cheap from one state to the next and so on and so forth. But in a more sort of, to take a little bit deeper dive into that, there is a more specific formula to counter economics. And this comes from Per Bilant, who is um, an agorist and a, an economic professor from Oklahoma State University, and who I really recommend all of your listeners check out if they're not familiar with yeah, we've actually had him on the show before. Okay, yes, yeah, so then you know as well as I do, he's absolutely brilliant. But um, one of the things he says is that counter-economics can sort of be divided into two parts, um, two different strategies. He calls the vertical and the horizontal strategy. So um, the first idea is that you want to sort of um, drop out of these sort of state institutions and create local production facilities that bypass state regulations. So you can think of like a 3D printer. It really is like the, you know, the really pretty, that's sort of an easy way to understand the concept of a local production facility or um, a garden or um, a blockchain miner is a sort of local production facility for currency. And then he says, if we combine one of these local production facilities with just voluntary, unregulated peer-to-peer trade, then that becomes a very powerful tool. And that is really the formula for counter-economics. So local production of something and then trading it locally as well. Right. In both in an unregulated fashion. And that is, um, I think that that's probably the most powerful tool that any libertarian has. Hmm. Okay. So either going around or just completely ignoring any regulations the state has on something to doing it anyway. Exactly. And, you know, the idea is that you are already free. I am already free. It's just that we have this sort of gang of bandits trying to oppress us. So by sitting down to the negotiating table with them and engaging in politics, we're sort of legitimizing their argument. But by completely ignoring them and say, and just, you know, becoming a sort of civil disobedient, a passive resistor, then we sort of, you know, delegitimize their claim over our, over our sovereignty. Nice. I like it. But then, of course, it seems like there's the possibility of looking on the negative side that you get caught and then the state takes your money, takes your property, throws you in a cage, points a gun at you. Is that just a risk that we think is worth it? Has that happened to a lot of folks who've done the counter economics? Yeah, so that's that, that, that's a real threat. Um, I actually have an article coming out on agorasnexus.com pretty soon um, about this. But, um, you know, so we, we like sovereign citizens. Sovereign citizens are sort of like the Gorus in the sense that we sort of dismiss the, these political claims over our lives, over our lives. But um, whereas they will sort of martyr their, themselves, the sovereign citizens, in open defiance of the, pol- of the political class, we Agoras prefer to sort of blend into the shadows, to sort of be the gray man. And we do that using operational security or OPSEC, which is really just... Um, like a risk reduction strategy 
that's sort of meant to conceal sensitive information from, uh, you know, statists and their cohorts. Really, there's three main ways we break down operational security in Agorism. There's privacy, secure computing, and encrypted communications. And it's important for all counter-economic op operators to um, have a solid basis in all three of these areas. <clears throat> but um, on a more like fundamental level to answer your question, yeah, there is. Agorism is risky. All revolution is risky. But we think that this is much less risky than facing the state in the battlefields, um, gun to gun. We think that this is a much more um, saner way of going about it, right? We, I don't think that we're going to you know, stand a chance trying to fight these people one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Um, but you know, the other thing I would say, I guess if my final point here is that if we are going to take our licks from the government, should we take them laying down like a slave or should we take them standing up and living free? You know, if, if you think about Ross Ulbricht and other, other civil disobedience like Gandhi, they can, um, they can never actually... So in other words, when, when, a, when an agorist does get caught, when they do find out one of our operations, it's not the case that we have one of these shootouts on the news at five o'clock with the police, right? You're not going to see an agorist do that. But you will see us on the news being oppressed by the state. So in this way, they can never really defeat the agorist. They can only sort of magnify our effect. Because by sort of, you know, um, sort of accepting their, their brutality, by almost welcoming it, we can expose their brutality to the masses. We can sort of force them to expose their brutality to the masses. That's what Gandhi did. He did it successfully. And I think Ross Ulbricht has sort of forced millions and millions of Americans to come face to face with the brutality of their masters, right? That's why he's got over half a million signatures on his petition to, for, for clemency. Yeah. It's, <clears throat> and it's really telling. And this, this goes into something else that I was going to talk to you about that the state passes these regulations. And then if you disobey, it's the gun, it's the force every time. And that brings me to a great meme that you had a a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, I can't remember exactly, it had a picture of, you know, the modern policeman who looks like he's supposed to be in the army with the shields and the body armor, etc. And the caption said something like, if your ideas require force to implement, they're not good ideas, something like that. And we have a phrase very similar that we like to use is good ideas don't require force. But I remember that one, of course, it was good, but it caught my eye and my interest because you were getting a lot of pushback from that. People saying things like, oh, well, I guess you don't believe in property then, or, well, you wouldn't stop a murder then, I guess, or things like that. So what, I mean, what are, what are your response to things such as that? Yeah, so that's sort of, you know, I, I, I do get a lot of that. And, um, at, you know, my store at Gore Threads, we sell coffee mugs is one of the things that we sell. And the most popular coffee mug we have is just two stick figures. One's holding a gun to the other one. And it says, socialism, ideas so good, they have to be mandatory. And it's sort of, sort of like, it's sort of like another way of saying that. Um, but you're right. And it, it, it's sort of absurd to me that, and, th you know, this is true of all laws right? Not just progressive, the progressive agenda, but all laws. If they were really such good ideas, then we wouldn't need them to be laws. People would just sort of adopt these ideas voluntarily. If, if 
you know, people are really disconcerned about COVID, if it really is this terrible pandemic, then they'll go out and they'll get vaccinated by themselves. They'll close their businesses by themselves if it's really necessary. But, um, you know, it's sort of the epitome of elitism in my mind to sort of say to people, hey, look, you're too dumb to know what's actually good for you. But thank God for you, you have the all wise Elizabeth Warren or the, you know, the wisdom of Bernie Sanders to make these decisions for you. You know, it's just, it's, it's absurd to me. You know, it's always like, you're, you're too dumb to understand that you need to save for, for retirement, but Bernie Sanders is going to do it for you. It's like the government is the least responsible entity on earth. Why would I want them to be in charge of, you know, my retirement or my health care or the roads or any other sort of thing? So all of these arguments sort of fall flat, both pragmatically and morally too, because you know, no one has the right to impose a belief on anyone else. So it's just, it's just all sort of absurd to me. And the more this goes on, the more I have a difficult time understanding how other people can't see it. I think one of the ones that, uh, that stuck out to me was, was the property argument, because they said, well, you need force to defend your property if someone tries to take it. But to me, that's, that's kind of putting the cart before the horse, because the bad idea that required force was trying to take your property in right. the first place. Right. It's almost like they expect one little phrase to have a complete philosophical uh, well system. we as we as as voluntarists as agorists as libertarians we are opposed to initiatory force we're not opposed to self-defense so um you know it's all about the violence initiator is what sam conkin calls them that is the person who's always wrong whoever initiates violence first is the person who's wrong and you know obviously you know the example of property or something like that property doesn't doesn't arise through violence as we know through Locke and then Rothbard it, it you know homesteading theory and stuff like that but um its defense doesn't require it only its violation does only only the government uh, uh you know does these sorts of things other than you know red marketeers mm-hmm. does them legitimately quote exactly unquote. yeah so then what force violence is what we usually think of would you include fraud in that as well yeah yeah so um if i sort of defraud you then yeah that's that's the, i i definitely include that if i lie to you in order to get you to engage in some agreement or something like that then absolutely absolutely yeah, I, I thought so but it's good to spell it all out yeah and that's not you know it's not always you know um crystal clear like that so something like blackmail i think should be legal i think walter block has made that that made that case pretty well in defending the defendable and all, all, all other sorts of things but the key is is the only rights that we actually have are property rights so in, in the agora that's really the only right that exists are our property rights and i think it's important to hold them in high regard to say the least yeah, absolutely if you if you don't own yourself as a property which People, I think, have a hard time with that because they think of property as just things. Well, I'm, I'm not a thing. I'm me. But you know, that's, that's the point. You are you and you own yourself. And by extension, you own things that you have used yourself, your body or your mind to obtain. Well, ex- exactly. But you know, now we're trying to change that. I mean, I don't, as just earlier today, or I'm not sure you even published this, but earlier today, they were talking about uh, how these schools want to dictate what the children learn now and they want to remove parents from the process entirely from the 
and just have politicians decide what, what children should be learning. So, you know, if you really do believe that you own yourself, um, I think the only sort of avenue to take is voluntarism. I, I'd agree. And starting from the beginning, so I think that's part of why why we're in this situation where so many people just automatically agree with the state and can't even imagine a world without it is because from the time they're very young, they're raised more or less by the state for six, eight hours a day. It's always there. And so they can't picture a world without it. And not only that, but they're, they're taught, you know, in, in quote unquote schools, I'm using air quotes now for those listening on audio that you know, to be obedient and to reward sort of obedience to state authority, to these government teachers, right? So you disobey them and, and you want to do something other than what they tell you that's wrong. And, you know, you're going to learn the hard way. You're going to have to do detention, obviously, these sorts of different punishments and whatnot. And I think that sort of creates this sort of, it helps indoctrinate the child. And it, it sort of creates this illusion of authority that carries with them until, um, in a lot of cases, throughout their whole life, but at least until they graduate high school. And they're sort of when they're taught these false versions of economics and history, um, then I think that that sort of sort of compounds the problem. Yeah. And I think I think a big part of it goes back to what you said, that they're just taught to obey these authority figures. And it's just whatever adult happens to be there instead of mother and father who have legitimate authority. They created your body. The I was thinking. Uh, my son is really good at reading. He just started to get really good. Uh, he's homeschooled. All of all of our kids are unschooled, to be precise. Yeah. And the, sometimes when we have friends from church or family come over, like they'll they'll try to ask leading questions of the kids to try to like figure out how much these they're really taught in this weird unschooling homeschooling thing. And a lot of the time, they don't respond at all or don't give the kinds of answers that they would expect from a publicly schooled child. And I have to explain that's because my child isn't taught to just answer whatever questions any adult happens to ask them. That's right. not that's not what he does. I know, but to you know, to the average everyday sort of fluoride drinker, as I call them, <laughs> that's sort of that, that's sort of absurd to them to think that there could be this child that's so young that's that's a sort of a free thinker already and sort of you know doesn't necessarily fall into these these societal norms, right? That are really unhealthy. Um, honestly, I think homeschoolers are are that's. Homeschoolers are the real heroes because that's that's the only way out of this, I think, is to sort of not to sort of do something. We have to do something to prevent the future generations from being indoctrinated into these sort of, like I said, not, you, I, I have a difficult time bringing myself to call them schools at this point. So, yeah, indoctrination facilities. Yeah. More accurate. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, you're you're lucky if be raised in a public indoctrination facility and then eventually find uh, Rothbard or Mises or even even Ayn Rand and start to realize, wow, things are not the way I thought they were. But most people just aren't that fortunate. So, yeah, no, I totally agree. And I look, I, I'm, I got very lucky myself. I went through high school, college. It wasn't until I was getting my master's degree that I sort of, I mean, I was, I was always sort of like this small government constitutionalist. 
But it wasn't until I got my master's degree, really, that I really dove into a lot of these things. And I realized, hey, maybe, you know, I had, I had a bachelor's degree in political science. I was getting a master's degree in political science. And this is what I'm like, I don't actually believe in these things, right? Because now yeah. I've discovered Rothbard and Mises. And, um, you know, luckily, I was able to sort of save that. And I, I, I did my own thing with... Um, Agora Threads, and now I, I write books about agorism, and I, I have different entrepreneurial activities, and I've really devoted myself full-time to counter-economics, and it's really paid off, so it was one of the better decisions I've made. Nice, nice, that's really good. I had, it was similar for me, right around, no, it was after your master's degree, and I was already working, but I had some friends who were uh, straight-up anarchists, and they started introducing me slowly you know, started out with uh, The Law by Bast- Bastiat, start to yeah. question, and then eventually into Rothbard and Mises. Whew. That's right down the rabbit hole. Yes, exactly, exactly. Once you get to Rothbard, it's, it's, there's no turning back at that point. Yeah, anatomy of the state is just, the logic is so sharp and so consistent yeah. and so clear. There's no way around it. No, right. Once, 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 you know, once, I forget who said it, but and I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's something like, you know, once a mind has been stretched by new ideas, it can never go back to its original dimensions. And that certainly is the case with Anatomy of the State and just anything by Rothbard, really. Mm-hmm. That's really good. But that's really impressive, though, that you have so many uh, counter-economic uh, sources, sources of income or different, uh, you know, fingers in different pies. I was... I was kind of stuck at that point because I got my master's degree in healthcare, uh, dietetics specifically, which seemed like a great idea at the time. But now, with all of the mandates, probably going to be looking for new employment in the next few months. Yeah, that's good. I, I, you know, I sort of got lucky, and I, I was, I, I, I'm sort of like a book nerd, a bookworm, and I've read a lot of books about like entrepreneurship and and stuff like that, and. yeah, I just put the pieces of the puzzle together. I sort of developed a social media following and I, I um, you know, sort of niched down and I went into this sort of sort of very niche philosophy of agorism. And um, yeah, the rest is sort of history. Um, like I said, I'm very thankful for it. It really enables me to live a very free lifestyle. I'm not sort of held down like a normal um, wage worker would be. I sort of I, like I said, I work for myself. I do what I want. And, and I think that's sort of really, again, just goes to show you that only agorism can really provide the individual with such an immediate instantaneous, um, with instantaneous liberation, but, but also really such an enormous degree of freedom. That's fantastic. And I think, I think to a large extent, that's what people want and would appreciate. I mean, there are some, of course, who knows how many who prefer being more safe to being more free. And the advantage of, of a liberty philosophy is that we think that's a choice they should be able to make. Right, exactly. And they should be able to make the choice for us that we should be more safe than free. That's right. Each person should be able to make for themselves and their families. Yeah, absolutely. And I would even take it a step further and say that they're not necessarily um, mutually exclusive or they don't always have to be mutually exclusive. I think by... Um, Sometimes by being more free, we are more safe. And by being more safe, we are more free. It's mm. a very good point, especially when safety to some people means the state controlling things. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Or, or, you know, just 
even if even if they were an efficient sort of uh, if if they were more efficient at maintaining law and order, is it still um, is it still worth it? And I would I, I would obviously argue no. Mm, I'd agree. Uh, well, I have one one more question before yeah. we go. So your little Twitter profile is that you has big old bushy hair and you have no hair right now. So I'm just I'm just wondering. That is Mac Trey. Mac Trey was um, a rapper from the Bay Area who unfortunately was shot and killed, but he was the greatest rapper of all time, in my opinion. And uh, I always loved that picture. So when I was, it was just very sort of happenstance when I was creating this Twitter profile that I never thought was going to blow up. That was the picture that I slapped on there as a sort of placeholder and people liked it and it stuck. I never changed it. You know, it's funny because every now and then, if I like do an event or a speaking event or something like that, um, it, you know, sometimes promoters will use that image. And then every now and then his family will actually send me like a, what is it, like a DMCA complaint, like a, a copyright sort of claim to like take down the picture. So um, I imagine one day I might have to remove that if I, my account gets too big, but we'll see what happens but yeah mac dre check him out greatest rapper ever extremely vulgar don't listen to him with your children around but um all right all right won't i won't do that <laughs> cool well sal thank you so much for coming on talking with us about agorism use of force versus peaceful coexistence and decisions thank you very much i'm going to look more into uh, Conkin's books and some of your books as well. Where, where can we get a hold of those? Yeah, so the book is anti-politics. Um, they're available on Amazon or Amazon Kindle. I also have a couple. Um, if, I, if people are interested in you know buying copies for crypto or something like that, just shoot me a DM or contact me through my website saviagoras.com, and we can we'll work something out. Sounds like a plan. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on. And you have a great day, Sal. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for watching this video. If you like what we do here, please like, share, subscribe, comment, and go over to our website where you can offer donations, request help, help us help people who are in need voluntarily. And we'll see you next time.